Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes who are the people who are going to be in the kingdom of God. A lot of misunderstanding about that and uh, this description of, that Jesus gives of the Christian character is in many ways antithetical to the ideals of the world. So that uh, a Christian is uh, very different from the world. There's a fair amount of confusion about uh, what is going to attract people to Jesus Christ. And in their confusion, which I trust is well-intentioned, there are some people who say, if we're going to attract people to come to Christ, we need to become as much like the world as we possibly can. And so they uh, adopt entertainment modes and musical modes that just are virtually indistinguishable from the world, except that they're a lot worse than what the world does. And... uh, Uh, but that's, that's a wrong idea. Uh, according to the teaching that we have here in the Sermon on the Mount, it is uh, a counterculture that will attract the world in the way that God wants them to be attracted. It's kind of like the, the opposite ends of a magnet. If you try to take the north end of one magnet and put it to the north end of an- another magnet, it repels. But if you take the south end and put it to the north end, then there's an attraction there. And uh, that's, that's much the way it is in the kingdom of God. After he gives a description of the Christian's character, he talks about the way that we relate to the world, and he says, you ought to be as different from the world as salt is different from meat that will otherwise putrefy and rot. You've got to be different. If you, if you are... If you're purporting to be salt and you've lost your savor, you're good for nothing. If you're just like bland like the rest of the world, you're not good for anything anymore as a Christian. You're to be as different from the world as light is from darkness. Light is not supposed to hide itself. You're supposed to put it on a place where it can illumine the room. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. The character that Jesus describes here is uh, drastically different from the kind of character that the world admires. Let's just start at the beginning of what he says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world would say, well, blessed are the aggressive in spirit. Blessed are those who are full of self-confidence. Blessed are those who follow their own heart and fulfill their dreams. And Jesus says, no, you've got it all wrong. Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing to offer God and they are beggars in spirit and every good thing that they need they have to get as a gift from God. And then the world would say, do all that you can to avoid sadness. Entertain yourself, uh, get high on drugs, get drunk on alcohol, have a party, have a good time. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way at all. He says in verse 3, blessed, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And as I said, this is not, this is not just espousing uh, depression or sadness. This is a sadness over sin. 
a sadness that is so deep that you do something about it. You look to God for comfort, and the Lord says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And when we have seen how good the Lord has been to us in spite of uh, our ill desert, then it causes us to change our perspective towards other people and how other people treat us and how God himself treats us. It causes us to be meek, not, uh, not flexing our muscles and say, I've got rights here and I'm going to make sure that I get my rights, but instead saying, my times are in God's hands I'm going to trust him. The Lord has been better to me than I deserve. And people don't know the half of uh, what they criticize me for. If they knew it all, it would be worse than, they, worse than they realize. Jesus says, blessed are you when you're in that position. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I take it that all three of these beatitudes show us, I really need something. I'm not as poor in spirit as I ought to be. I'm not as mournful over sin as I ought to be. I am not as meek as I ought to be. I need righteousness. I need something that I cannot provide for myself. I need righteousness. And Jesus says, well, if that's where you are, then you're just exactly in the right position. The next beatitude, the one that we'll spend our time on today, is there in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I'll not read the rest of the Beatitudes this morning. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, or as it says in another translation, they shall be filled. Now today I want us to uh, think about this verse of Scripture under five headings. First of all, let's examine the metaphor and its power hungering and thirsting together. Obviously meant to express very intense desire. Let's take a few minutes to think about that. Let's examine the metaphor of hungering and thirsting together. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And then let's see, secondly, what are they hungering for? Hungering for righteousness. Thirdly, I want us to look at a few biblical examples of people who show us and express to us what it is like to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then remember uh, that Jesus says they're blessed. Why? For they shall be filled or they shall be satisfied. So let's see in what ways those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are filled with righteousness. And then we'll conclude with just a few sentences on if, if we want to cultivate this character quality in us, is there anything that we can do? What can we do to make ourselves more hungry and thirsty for righteousness? So we're going to go back and examine the metaphor, hungering and thirsting. Sometimes uh, people ask me, what's the best meal that you ever had? And I have a stock answer. I'm not exactly sure that it is the best meal that I ever had, but it's the answer that I always give. It was during the days that I was hitchhiking around the United States, and I was in... Uh, the eastern plains of Montana, and it was cold, and I was hungry, and in my backpack, I was, I was backpacking, and in my backpack, I had one can of pork and beans, one can. Not, I don't remember if I'd eaten anything that day, but now it was uh, getting dark, and I'd pitched my tent out in the middle of this grassy field, and the wind was blowing, and I was really hungry. 
And I opened that can of pork and beans and ate it as slowly as I could discipline myself to do it. That little tiny piece of fat that some of you throw away, oh no. <laughs> ate that too. And if I had a means to uh, scrape out the inside of the can, I did. I could have eaten ten of those things. But that one can, oh, so good. I have uh, sometimes fasted for several days. Uh, if you've ever done that, then you know you kind of reach a point where you're, you're not just starving. But after about three days, you think a lot about food. <laughs> and... Uh, you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about Captain Crunch and uh, <laughs> Rice Krispie Treats and so on. Uh, and most of us have only been hungry when we have deliberately fasted or if we have been sick and we, never, and we, we didn't eat because we were sick. Most of us have never experienced really intense hunger, the kind of hunger that people experience when they have gone for weeks without a good meal. You students in high school, if you're looking for a good book to do a book report on, you ought to look up the book Ordeal by Hunger, the story of the Donner Party and what they went through as they were trying to get to California and winter set down on them and many of the people there starved to death and uh, it's a very, very, very fascinating book and uh, man, those people knew what hunger was. I've very rarely been so thirsty that I thought I was going to die, but I had the experience, like some of you older people did, of uh, playing football and basketball under coaches who thought that if they didn't let us get a drink of water, it would make us tough. And so I can remember playing football in August in full pads out in the blazing August sun, two, two and a half hours of practice not a drop of water. And then when the coach blew the whistle that we could go, there was a stampede for the water fountain, just one water fountain that was available. And uh, people would get pretty testy because the people at the front of the line would drink all the cold water, and, but we didn't care. By the time we got to the water fountain, we wanted a drink. And uh, it's, a, it's amazing that we never died of, of, of uh, heat stroke. If any of you had coaches like that, you'll have to tell me about it after the service. But I had two or three coaches like that. Would not let us drink water. Man, and it gets to the point where all you can think about is, I've got to have some water. I've just got to have some water. Well, you take both of those things together, hungering and thirsting, and that's what we have in this metaphor. Jesus says, blessed are those who not just hunger... Not just thirst, but hunger and thirst. So this is a very intense desire that we have after righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then something about hungering and thirsting is it doesn't get better if you leave it alone. It's only going to become more intense and the effects of your starvation are going to become more apparent. You don't get to the place where you just say, I don't need to eat and I don't need to drink. In fact, it gets to the point where it's about all that you can think about. When you're hungry enough and when you're thirsty enough, it's just about all that you can think about. And Jesus says, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst after righteousness. And although hungering and thirsting 
uh, is something that we find undesirable, consider it from this perspective. If you are hungry and thirsty, it is an indication that you're healthy. All of us have probably been around older people who were close to death, and when they got close to death, they gave up eating. It's like their body, their body shut down, and they didn't want to eat anymore. So if you want, if you want righteousness, if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, well, that's a good thing. You may be uncomfortable, but you're in the position to be filled if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Now, secondly, we've, we've looked at the metaphor, how that it's very intense, it is ongoing. And uh, now let's look secondly at what we are hungering and thirsting for when Jesus says we are blessed. Let me start off with saying it is not simply a hungering and a thirsting after escape from hell. Now, I'm going to mention several things here, and they are all good things. Wanting to escape from hell is a good thing. It seems to me that there are some Christians who are almost ashamed to admit how big a role the fear of hell played in their coming to Jesus Christ. You should, you should not be ashamed of that. Uh, if, if hell is real, and it is, and if you're going there, and if you're not a believer, you are, unless you repent, you ought to be afraid. It ought to keep you up at night. You ought to think, you know, I heard of uh, Ronnie and Nancy Montgomery had a perfectly healthy, active 13-year-old boy in their family, not their son, but close relative, 13 years old, died in his sleep. David Hasty was telling us this morning in our men's prayer group about a friend of his who had been working on a building, looking forward to using that building. He just retired. Wife comes in the next morning, and he's dead. If you're not ready to face eternity, you ought to be afraid of hell. But hungering and thirsting after righteousness is not just fearing hell, as good as that might be. On the other hand, it's not just looking forward to heaven. There is a, a genre of, of Christian music that seems every, every, every other song is about heaven and what I'm going to see when I get to heaven. And like I said, that's a good thing. Most of us probably don't think enough about going to heaven. But uh, hungering and thirsting after righteousness is not just the desire to go to a good, comfortable place when you die. And this might surprise some of you, but hungering and thirsting after righteousness is not just wanting to be free from sin. Sin is a, a negative. Righteousness is a positive. We don't want to just get up to zero on the number line after going through all the negative numbers of sin. Instead, we're hungering and thirsting after what is on the positive side of that. Be like you saying to your spouse, well, let's say your fiancé. Let's you say to your fiancé, do you find me attractive? And your fiancé says, no, you're okay. You're not ugly. No, that's not what you want to hear. I you see why I switched it from spouse to fiancé? Your spouse will be honest and say, you're looking pretty rough these days, boy. <laughs> But when you're, when you're engaged, do you find me attractive? Well, 
you know you're not ugly. That's not what you want to hear. And that's kind of, if, you, if you're just saying, I just want to be free from sin, I want, I want, no, it's beyond that. I don't want to just be free from sin. I'm hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Well, what kind of righteousness are we after here? Well, I think that there are two, two ways that we can read this. I think that they're both, both legitimately in this verse. The first is that we want to be right with God. And secondly, we want to be right before God. Or let me put it this way. We want to be in a state of righteousness, but we also want to be in a condition of of righteousness. Let's think about, first of all, we want to be right with God. As a result of sin, there is a severe interruption between our having fellowship with God. We are not right with God. He does not approve of the things that we love. And, and honestly, we don't really like the way that He, he wants us to live. We we think that he is somehow trying to stifle us from having a good time. Uh, we seem to have the idea that God is looking down from heaven on the world saying, now who's having a good time? We can't have any good times. We've, we've got to squelch all the joy and all the happiness. That's the perspective that I had and that many of you, if you're honest, had towards God. So there's, a, there's an interruption between the... We're not right with God. And then, if God in His mercy sends His Holy Spirit to cause you upset, to be upset with that condition, then you start to think, well, how can I be right with God? And almost inevitably, almost 100% of the time, what you'll think is, I need to do better. I need to stop doing this bad thing that I'm doing. I need to start going to church. I need to read the Bible. I need to pray more. Almost 100% of the time, that's what will happen when someone says, I'm not right with God and I don't like it and I want to be right with God. What am I supposed to do? Well, I'll just do better. And then you try to do better. And maybe you do, in fact, do better. But then it occurs to you, or maybe you hear a sermon, or maybe you read it in the Bible, that God says, if you keep the whole law, and just break one of the laws, you've ruined the fabric. You're just as guilty. You've, you're no way you're going to get to heaven through keeping the law. In uh, the Museum of Natural History in, uh, in Washington, D.C., there is a crystal that's about this big. And uh, the, the little information says it's the most perfect crystal in the world. It's just hard to believe that this is a rock that has been so perfectly smoothed and polished, just, just a, as perfect a sphere as it can be. It's under glass. Uh, I'm sure it's unbreakable glass. But just imagine if you thought, well, I wonder if this thing will break. And you took a little ball-peen hammer and you went, bing! And out comes a little chip like you shot it with a BB. It's no longer a perfect sphere, is it? I mean, the rest of it's there, but here's this one little BB chip out of it. 
That's the way it is with trying to get right with God through keeping the law. If you could keep it all perfectly, good, He'll let you into heaven. But you just mess up one time, and it is no longer an option for you. Of course, we all, we all messed that up before we could even talk. How can I be right with God? And the message of the New Testament is, God sent His Son who didn't even make one ding in the crystal. He kept all of God's law perfectly. And so when, when he died, then he didn't need to die for his own sins. He had no sins. But God punished Jesus for the sins of other people. What other people? Everyone who will trust in him. Everyone who believes in Jesus, their sins were put on, were put on Jesus. And then... God raised Jesus from the dead. And you know this perfect crystal of righteousness that Jesus had? Now, raised from the dead, He gives it to us. He gives it to people who trust in Him. A perfect, sinless righteousness. Christianity is the only religion in the world by which you get to go to a good place when you die because of what someone else has done. Every other religion of the world and most misunderstandings of Christianity will be you get to go to a good place because of the good things that you have done. But with Christianity, you get to be right with God because of what someone else has done. It is true, the only way to get to heaven is through a life of perfect righteousness. Just not your life. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and His life that He gives to everyone who is united to Him by faith. And so, when we're united to Jesus by faith, our sins are punished in Jesus. When we're united to Jesus by faith, we're raised to life with Jesus. When we're united to Jesus by faith, the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. And so... Everybody who is saved says, I want that. I want that righteousness. I hunger and thirst to be right with God. But not only do we want to be right with God, we want to be right before God. What I've just described to you is a state of righteousness. And now I'm saying that we want to have a condition of righteousness. That is that we want to live in a way that pleases the Lord. We, we don't fear that He's going to throw us down to hell because of our sin. Hell has been suffered for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't want to displease our Father. We love that fellowship with Him. And so we hunger and thirst to be right before Him. So that first thing that I talked about when you are made right with God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that's justification. And justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. 
Now, this being right before being right before God, being right before God is sanctification. And sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And every child of God wants that. Now, we, we all ought to want it more intensely, but if you are really a child of God, then you do not have the attitude I'm going to heaven, I'm not going to hell, therefore I don't care how I live the rest of my life. No. If you can continue living a life where you enjoy sin, you have never been converted. If we say that we have, we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. The Bible is very clear about that. So we hunger and thirst after righteousness. We want to be right with God, and we want to be right before God. Now let's consider a few examples from the Scripture of people who show us what it was like to be hungry and thirsty after God. I want to remind you of something that happened in, in the life of Moses, that great prophet of the Old Testament. Now to prepare you for what I'm going to cite as evidence of Moses being a hungry, thirsty person after God. I want to remind you that Moses had seen a lot of great miracles, and they were performed through him. So the ten plagues of Egypt, they came and went at Moses' behest. Uh, he saw the manna come down in the wilderness. The people needed a drink of water. The Lord said, take your rod, strike the rock. He strikes the rock, water comes out. I mean, Moses has seen a lot. But in Exodus chapter 33, we find Moses saying to the Lord, now show me your glory. Ah. Moses says, I've, I've tasted Maybe more than other people on earth. Maybe more than anybody on earth up to this time has seen. I've tasted that you are good. I've tasted. I've seen. But I know that there's so much more. And for Moses, it was like when you don't really know you're hungry, and then you smell that food, and you take that first bite, and suddenly you're ravenous. And that's the way it was for Moses. Now show me your glory. That's someone who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Or think about Psalm 42 in verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. Now many of us read that and we, we think of this picturesque scene, something like I described to you on Wednesday night. There's a, a lake in the woods and a deer comes down and quietly dips his nose in the water and the, the red-winged blackbirds are singing and the frogs jump in. That's kind of what we think. Oh, it's so peaceful. Read the whole psalm. In the whole psalm, he is miserable. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you so disquieted within me? He is, he is down, and he says, but I know where I need to get a drink. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. You deer hunters will know that if you wound a deer, and you've got a blood trail, but then you lose it, 
If there's water in the area, a good place to go is to walk the creek bank or go to the pond and walk around. Because when something is bleeding to death, it gets really thirsty. And that's the, that, I believe, is the right perspective on Psalm 42. Like a wounded deer. I, I, there's nothing else that can satisfy me. I, I've got to have you. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. Or then consider that hungry, thirsty man who wrote Psalm 63. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I must have God. My soul longs for God. Or you think about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. We read, we read part of his testimony from Philippians chapter 3. What I didn't read was his, his trophy case. So he says just before, in the, in, just before where I started reading in verse 7 of Philippians 3, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to boast, I have more. Other people of Israel, circumcised on the eighth day, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In regard to zeal, I persecuted the church. In regard to legalistic righteousness, faultless. That's his trophy table. Those of us who were athletes, just, it's just irrational how much value we place on trophies and medals and ribbons. And you don't, you don't come home from a track meet and throw that first place trophy in the trash. You put it there in your trophy case. You, I, had a, I had a chest of drawers at home. And from that very first trophy that I got playing baseball when I was six or seven years old, all the way through college, I had all these trophies set up. Oh, I remember I won that one at this meet. I won, we got that one at this tournament and, and so on. There are all these memories the Apostle Paul had a whole trophy case full of that stuff. It was all over the, the top of his chest of drawers at home where he had been voted most likely, most zealous in his high school class and all of that. And he just takes his, his army, just slings it all off. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. What made you do that? A few years ago, I, I tried to throw away some of those old trophies and it pained me to do it. And then my wife came to the rescue and said, you can't throw those away. We've got, we've got to keep those and let the kids throw them away when we die. <clears throat> so I, th I think that they all survived. I'm not sure. haven't seen them for a long time. But what would make you do that, Paul? Oh, there's something that I want better. Something that I want more. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So the fact that I was born to the tribe of Israel, I don't care. Hebrew of the Hebrews, I don't care. Circumcised the eighth day, doesn't matter. Zealous, legalist, it doesn't matter. What I want more than anything is to possess Christ and to be found in Him. Not having my own righteousness, but having the righteousness of Christ. That may surprise you, as I'm giving examples of people who hunger and thirsted after righteousness, that Jesus is one. You say, but he never sinned. Yeah, that's true. He never sinned, so he never had to regret sinning. But he still said, I've come to do your will, Father. 
I always do the things that please him. That's possible only for a person who is hungry and thirsty after righteousness. So now we're up to number four. We've seen the metaphor, hungry and thirsty after righteousness. We've seen that they're hungry for righteousness. We've seen some examples. And now let's look at why they are blessed. The Lord says they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. And this is not just a, just a little sniff. It's not just a little bite to hold you over till supper. You shall be filled. You'll be filled with righteousness. In what way will you be filled with righteousness? Well, right now you will be covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you will be justified when you hunger and thirst after righteousness and appeal to God through Jesus Christ to save you through Jesus. Then right now you are righteous. And then even now you ought to have seen progress. Some things that used to torment you and used to lead you into sin no longer have that power over you. God is enabling you even now to die more and more under sin and live under righteousness. And it is not, it's not arrogant to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I one day hope to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I once was. And give Him all the glory for it. Even now, the Lord is turning you into a righteous person. Someone who, who loves right, not just does righteousness, but someone who thinks righteousness and who really loves righteousness. And it's the kind of filling that will happen again and again until one day when you lay your tired old body down, then your soul will immediately be made perfect in holiness. And your body will lie in the grave until the resurrection and judgment of the great day. And then one day your body will be raised from the dead and you will be given a body that is suitable for a perfectly holy soul. And you'll be made perfectly blessed both in soul and body in the full enjoyment of God throughout all eternity. Blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be filled. Now finally, we all can say, I wish that I were more hungry and thirsty for righteousness. What can I do? Well, first of all, stop eating so much junk food. If you want to be hungry and thirsty for really good stuff, stop eating so much junk food. And then don't just get rid of the junk food. Replace it with good food. Replace it with the truth of God's Word. Replace it with meditation and prayer in God's presence. Ask God, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. So stop eating, stop gorging yourself on potato chips and Twinkies and, and eat real substantial uh, truth. So first of all, stop eating junk food. Secondly, cultivate a society of hungry and thirsty people. I started to say, make friends with people who are hungry and thirsty, and that's part of it, but you need to be part of that group too. You also need to be a person who is hungry and thirsty after righteousness. So that's why I say cultivate a society. You're part of it. Cultivate friendships and cultivate a character in yourself that is hungry and thirsty after righteousness. It is 
contagious when you're around people who are hungry and thirsty after righteousness. Then there are also good books to read. Read read good biographies of great men and women of the faith, and uh, that can also inflame your soul to become more hungry and thirsty after righteousness. My mother was always a godly woman, uh, but when I was in my early 20s, I read the two-volume biography of George Whitfield, and between the two volumes, I read George Whitfield's journals. And I uh, lent my mother the copy of the journals, and she read it. George Whitfield was an evangelist who lived in the 1700s and who was a mighty preacher, and there were thousands of people who were converted under his ministry. So I gave the journals of George Whitfield to my mom, and several months later, I had noticed that my mom had really kicked it up a notch spiritually. Like I said, she'd always been a godly woman. And one day we were sitting in the yard and I said, Mom, you know, you've always been an earnest, consistent Christian, but lately, what's happened? And she said, I really think it was reading the journals of George Whitfield. And so I've experienced the same sort of thing, reading, reading biographies of of great men and women of the faith that really inspires you and causes me, and I think it will cause you too, to be more hungry and thirsty after righteousness. And then finally, ask God. Ask God to make you more hungry and thirsty. Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And I'm confident that the Lord is pleased when we turn to him and say, I do love you, Lord, but I want to love you more. I I do hunger and thirst after righteousness, but I want you to get me to the place where I say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jim Bob, come lead us in a concluding hymn.